0: The dynamic in the gut is so important and we're recognizing that it it may be a player in Parkinson's disease and even dementia. It's important for our patients to recognize that we carry around like a couple of pounds of bacteria in our gut and those bacteria are doing, they can do good things and they can do bad things. And it just depends on how we feed them. So prebiotic foods, inulin chicory, fiber, are so important to feed the, the, those bacteria and encourage all these immunoregulatory substances that they make. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Wellness, podcast sponsored by the Columbia Association. I am Dr. Harry Oken, a community physician for over 35 years and the medical director for the Columbia Association. I am proud to be working with Columbia Association for over a decade to help assist in their mission to improve the health and wellness of our community. It's my pleasure to introduce a return guest. Dr. Joshi Rayo is a trusted and accomplished colleague. Dr. Rayo has been practicing for over 25 years and she received her MD degree from the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey and completed her internship and residency at Tufts New England Medical Center in Boston. She is a strong proponent of total holistic care And she is certified in medical acupuncture from UCLA. In addition, she has a master's degree in metabolic nutrition from the University of South Florida. Dr. Rao is board certified in internal medicine as well as anti-aging medicine. She is also the co-author of two books, Body on Fire, Your Guide to Eating Plant Foods that Fight Disease, and as well as Finding Balance, Empower Yourself with Tools to Combat Stress and Illness. Today, we're going to talk about a host of vitamins and supplements. As we both know, this is big business, and of course, it's our job to provide guidance for the use of helpful vitamins and supplements and assist our patients to avoid overuse and misuse. We try our best to use evidence-based medicine to guide our patients to use these supplements and vitamins for good health. Vitamins and supplements are an extremely popular option for consumers, and the use of This has rapidly grown over the last decade. The global dietary supplement market is worth over $160 billion as of 2022, and Americans spend $30 billion on supplements every single year. To make it worse, there's 29,000 different dietary supplements available to U.S. consumers. And if that's not enough, there are approximately 1,000 new supplements that come to market each year. 77% of Americans take at least one supplement. So there we are with a complicated, very, very assorted market out there of different things that patients are taking. And oftentimes we're advising them to take it or not take it. So starting off, we're gonna sort of rapid fire a whole bunch of different supplements and discuss our different takes on it. Let's start with um, multivitamins. What do you think about a multivitamin for everybody?
1: So I think that supplement industry is effective just like any other tool for our patients, but I always like to start with lifestyle. And so if the diet isn't optimal, and a lot of us don't eat optimally all the time, I think a supplementation of nutrients is very effective when your gut is healthy. So a lot of people are walking around with a bad gut. You can put all the supplements in you want, it's just not getting absorbed. So I always like to lean on nutrition first through food. However, multivitamins and certain nutrients like vitamin D and B vitamins, I think are very, very helpful to bridge the gap so that people can actually get to the lifestyle choices because they're so tired and they're so sleep deprived. And so I use supplements as a bridge. And multivitamins I feel are very effective, especially if it's a good quality multivitamin. And I like to do it through whole foods if I can, and in order to round out someone's diet to get the basic essential nutrients. For example, things like zinc, things like a low level of vitamin A or vitamin E or those antioxidants that if you're not eating perfectly, you may not be getting as much of. And we know in some of the literature for say Alzheimer's and cognitive dysfunction that multivitamin use has been helpful in some studies. So I am a proponent of a good quality multivitamin. I do like to use things that are products that are made from whole foods as much as possible with not too much sweeteners. And if I do have a sweetener in it, like with the whole food powder, I'd like to choose monk fruit or stevia versus something else artificial. But as a rule, I think having something like a protein powder combination with the multivitamin, some of those powders will do that is really effective because I feel like in the macronutrient world, the proteins are not as focused on, or we can't get as much as we need oftentimes, especially as we age. That's
0: a great answer. And I love the fact that you brought up having a healthy diet, because really, if you have a really healthy diet, you don't need many supplements unless you're trying to treat some sort of specific disease entity. I always say to my patients, are you getting five to seven servings of fresh fruits and vegetables a day? And it's the rare person that really is. And I target that. And that's where I think and recommend a multivitamin on a daily basis. And you know, for many, many years, the medical literature has said multivitamins are of no help. But as you referenced, there was recently a study that looked at 20-year data that showed people who took a multivitamin every day for many, many years had less dementia, less cardiovascular disease, less cancer, less likely to get diabetes. So I think your point is so well taken. You also mentioned about vitamin D3, a very important vitamin. I'd like to hear your comments about that.
1: I just want to make one more comment about the actual issue for the multivitamin need. One thing I also have found, and you also know, is that the soil quality is going down. Our produce doesn't have as as many nutrients as possible. So even if we were eating five to seven servings of the same food 10, 15 years ago, we're getting less nutrients today. And so that is a bigger challenge. So we have to kind of supplement, think about that in the multivitamin world as well. And also the issue about you know, having other things managed. Like if your sleep quality is horrible, you're not moving, you're stressed out of your mind, your nutrients and your absorption of foods are also not going to be as effective. So I do think that putting all this in context of lifestyle first, including sleep and stress management and movement is really important. But getting back to vitamin D, I think that there's two forms of vitamin D out there. There's a little bit of a confusion. We check one level in the blood. We tend to, at least I tend to supplement with vitamin D3 more, because I find it to be more effective. I find vitamin D to be very essential for most patients because it directly impacts the immune system. And for almost everything we have in medicine, specifically in internal medicine, almost everything has an itis component to it. So that inflammation component is directly targeted by vitamin D for most people. So I like the level to be about 50 to 80 for the vitamin D level and that's my target level. So I don't feel like one size fits all. I monitor the levels. I tend to use prescription level D2 when it's super low, gets people's levels up. It's once a week, it's convenient. But then I switch them to D3 oftentimes because it's just more effective at maintaining. And that's what I found in my practice.
0: You know, often people are worried about vitamin D toxicity. I have never seen that. It's hard to get toxic on vitamin D.
1: Right. It's one of those foods that you just can't eat enough of. We can't get enough through light because of our latitude. Most people can't get enough through sun and obviously sun cancer is at risk. So we can't do, you know, so there's a lot of barriers to vitamin D, but we've found over and over again for neurological function, musculoskeletal function, bone density, cognitive function, and any inflammation in the body. I feel it's so essential
0: to have a normal vitamin D. And, you know, there were studies after studies that showed during the pandemic that if you had had normal or high vitamin D levels. Your likelihood of being hospitalized for coronavirus was so much lower. And I think people forget, even physicians forget, vitamin D is a hormone. I mean, it's a pretty active, important vitamin. Let's go to turmeric or curcumin. Your thoughts about that?
1: I love things that are food-based. As an Indian physician, you know, we've we're cooked with turmeric my whole life and it's been part of our, our dietary makeup. So the fact that it had some great data on the COX-2 inhibition pathways are amazing because it could replace some of those NSAID type of illnesses that we use uh, non-steroidals or we do use COX-2 inhibitors for, which are for pain and inflammation, again, another itis. So most illnesses have an itis component Curcumin is great for itis. I recommend it all the time, sometimes for pain, sometimes for cognitive function, sometimes for hormone balance. When it works, it works great. And if you can cook with it a teaspoon a day, eat with it, that's great. If not, for therapeutic purposes, I found the supplements are very helpful to kind of give people a standard dose on a daily basis to know if it's effective. I think the best way people see it is if their pain levels get better, joint pains, muscle pains, that kind of thing. But I think I use it sometimes just as a maintenance for people who are actively inflamed as if their C- protein's elevated or they have a conic inflammatory condition that would be helped by the curcumin.
0: I think it's a great, safe compound. I take it myself. And I'm always trying to tell people that if they do take it, it should probably have black pepper in it to help raise levels. You agree with that, that's right?
1: True. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: that's true. All right. Let's go to omega-3 fatty acids. What do you think?
1: This is the one that's been kind of confusing for me because of the theoretical role in inflammation pathways. It has so much potential, the EPA and more of the inflammation with joints and the DHA part that is the breakdown for the cognitive function world. I think it has some credible data. What's confusing for me is the arrhythmia stuff that comes up in the literature that shows that over a certain gram, I guess maybe it's four grams, that it can induce AFib. I've never seen it. In fact, some of the literature says that it is protective for ventricular tachycardia. So I'm a very confused about you know that dose, but I do tend to be cautious for people who have blood thinning issues, bruising issues. I tend to be a little cautious, especially if I'm using turmeric and omega-3s because they both thin out the blood a little bit. I am cautious in patients who have any cardiovascular issues, arrhythmia issues. If they're on Thyroid support, and they're working on a little bit high thyroid level or they're predisposed to atrial fibrillation. But in general, I think it's a great supplement and a nutrient. I check omega 3 indexes on my patients to find out if they're taking enough. Obviously, we start with foods, hemp seeds, flax seeds, chia seeds in the diet, walnuts, kale, avocados. It's just not enough for people because it's a supply and demand issue. If you're very, very inflamed, your demand for omega 3s goes up. So you may not be able to keep up with your demands just by food. So then the whole issue about whether it's fish or algae comes up, again, we we look at levels to decide how much to do and for how long. But I also think that the fish oil from actual fish is much more efficient. You need a lot more with algae and it takes a lot to get your levels up as opposed to omega-3s through fish oils itself.
0: And if you're good taking a good quality fish oil, you don't have to worry about bioaccumulation of toxins and and mercury. I agree with you. I think that the American diet is largely deficient in omega-3s. And just like you said, all those food sources are wonderful. Walnuts, getting nuts every day is just a smart thing. Just a handful of nuts, particularly uh, almonds and walnuts makes so much sense. And you can get a lot of omega-3s just from that. Um, The
1: first kickback I get from that statement from a lot of patients is, oh, but they have so many calories. But I think that they're effective nutrient calories that our body needs and will soak up like a sponge. I don't think it's the type that gets deposited into fat because it's being used effectively within our physiology. So I don't worry about the fat content for most people with nuts.
0: It's a good fat too. All right, let's go on to another one. Vitamin K2. Thoughts?
1: I think the biggest one for me for a game changer for bone density, you know, it has great data for lipid reduction and it has great data for bone density and I add it to most of my postmenopausal women patients I probably should add it to the men too in terms of just their age but I feel like it's a key nutrient a lot of my vitamin D that I prescribe does have the K2 in it because they go well together but I think that it is it's an excellent nutrient another one that's very hard to get through plants or with our diets that are safe right. that are not put in saturated fats so I recommend that routinely
0: with my D. And I think the dietary source is a fermented soybean called NATO. Yes. Uh, Or you can get it in some soft cheeses, which maybe we don't want people to do because of the high cholesterol and fat content of those soft cheeses. Coenzyme Q10.
1: So this brings us to the question of, you know, I think it's a great antioxidant, by the way. It, It works really well for statin induced myalgia and things like that. So we have to also think about when we prescribe medications, that there are some nutrient depletions that can happen with some of our common medications like statins, which we use very often. And I think we have to be mindful of the nutrient depletions that happen as normal physiology that because of taking that drug. And coenzyme Q10, I believe, is one of those that can really help prevent the damage to maybe the musculoskeletal issues that can be caused by statin. So I routinely prescribe it for anyone who takes a statin routinely prescribe it to anyone who has any mild cognitive impairment. But I also have been checking levels in the blood. So specific nutrients like this, if they're not on a drug that I know depletes it, I will wait for a nutrient test to help me guide in terms of the benefits and the risks of taking a supplement, right? Because it's overwhelming. You can take so many things, but at some point your gut's not going to absorb everything. So that's one that I, I also check nutrient status on to help me guide the therapy.
0: It's sort of my standard. Anybody on a statin should be on coenzyme Q10. I agree with you for that, and and the dose is probably between 100 and 200 milligrams a day. And I don't really focus on a particular brand.
1: I think ubiquinol is another way to get coQ10, which I believe is half the dose of the coenzyme Q10 in terms of efficacy. So for people who don't want to take high doses, I go from 100 to 300 milligrams, depending on the statin dose that they're on. I can also use ubiquinol at a lower dose.
0: There was um, some data in the literature about ubiquinol versus ubiquinone, and that maybe as we aged, we lost the ability to convert ubiquinone to ubiquinol, the active ingredient. I- I've only seen that cited once or twice. I-, I don't know if it's true or not, but again, anybody else statin in my practice, I'm always saying, hey, are you taking your co-ens on Q10? Yeah. All right, let's talk about probiotics.
1: Okay. Yeah. So probiotics, also a great concept to come back to people's diet, right? So that's the first conversation is what are you eating fermented foods? What's your gut like? I do still test at my practice. So we can look at microbiome a little bit snapshot. And so we use that as a gauge. We're always stressing fermented food, but there's a subset of people with bacterial overgrowth, yeast overgrowth, you know, that don't tolerate fermented foods very well or they have some sort of dysfunction within the motility, some sort of issue that they just can't eat it for whatever reason in the beginning. I like probiotics, I use them all the time. I think that there's a lot of variety, right? So there's so many different strains, we have 100 trillion colonies in our gut, you know, you take a probiotic with six different strains, it can't possibly be enough for you forever. So I tend to rotate probiotics. But most of the time, a new player that's come up that I've been really fascinated with is acromensia. It has a lot of literature on there. It comes from polyphenols, which are foods that we should be eating, but oftentimes not enough. And it it has been a game changer for some of my patients with chronic irritable bowel type symptoms. When I find it low on the stool test, I've added it. I never used to before. The literature has come out on it a lot more recently, and it's been helping a lot of my patients kind of change that game. It's, it's just one of those that I think has to be separated because it's not in those sep- those formulas that are combined. I also like a good yeast called Saccharomyces boulardii because it has a lot of potential for histamine foods. Like a lot of people have diarrhea and mast cell issues with their gut that can cause cramping and diarrhea, and that can be a histamine reaction. So Saccharomyces boulardii can be an antihistamine, but it also tends to, for some reason, stabilize the gut, give it some good call qualities. And it definitely for people on antibiotics, I put it on board to help prevent C. diff because there's literature to show that. But I have been converting more of my patients from probiotics to prebiotics, because that way, the prebiotics like chicory and inulin and all of those things that are in are in foods, which can be taken as foods. But these guys grow lots of colonies. So another concept that you know, to go along with what you were telling people to five to seven servings, I tell people to try to get 30 different fruits and vegetables a week. So, you know, given week, different colors, seeds count, herbs count, spices count, but that diversity can really grow on a prebiotic as opposed to taking a probiotic, which are already the same organisms all the time.
0: I think the, uh... The, the the dynamic in the gut is so important and we're recognizing it, it, that it may be a player in Parkinson's disease and even dementia. It's important for our patients to recognize that we carry around like a couple of pounds of bacteria in our gut. And those bacteria are doing, they can do good things and they can do bad things. Yeah. And yeah. it just depends on how we feed them. So prebiotic foods, inulin, chicory, fiber are so important to feed the, the, those bacteria and encourage all these immunoregulatory substances that they make. So that's an interesting thing, just while we're talking about it. One supplement I've been interested in recently is called Urolithin A. Do you do you know much about that?
1: I know a little bit about it. It comes from pomegranates. Right. Yeah. And I think it's a, in the anti-aging world, heart disease world, I think it's a player. I have not used it personally. I've not seen it used as well. I I I'm kind of new to it as a concept.
0: Well, the reason why I bring it up is because some people, if they take in pomegranate, they have the right flora in their in their gut to actually break down the pre-substance to urolothin A and get the benefit. Otherwise, for most people to get the benefit of urolothin A, they need to uh, actually take it. And there's a few companies that make it. And what I've read about it has been really interesting in terms of aging. It tends to actually improve mitochondrial function. And maybe perhaps that's why some people who take it have more energy, they feel better. I'm really looking into that one. I think it's a very interesting anti-aging compound. Well, let's um, let's talk a little bit about creatine. Do you use mm-hmm. creatine much?
1: In my athletes, I have used it to help with their intensity of aerobic workout. I usually use it to about 20 grams pre-workout to help increase their endurance, especially for the high intensity candidates. I think there's a little bit of abuse potential with it, especially in the younger age group. So I'm not recommending it all the time, but there is some role for it when you're talking about
0: endurance. And there's been some discussion that it may be actually helpful for brain function. The other thing is if you're taking creatine and you have blood work done, it can falsely rise your creatinine, which is a marker for kidney function. So it's it's important if you're taking that to make sure your doctor knows about it. What do you think about glutathione?
1: Love it. I use it all the time in my patients. So it's a very powerful antioxidant, which is needed to kind of squash the oxidative stress from our daily life and lifestyle choices that we make. It is the most powerful thing that our liver makes naturally as an antioxidant. But again, it doesn't keep up with the demand sometimes. And it is a great immune modulator. It's a great detoxifier. It has helped so many of my patients with many chronic underlying issues. I have even given it IV in my practice. So I love it. I think it's a it's it's powerful when it works. Is it for everybody? Maybe not, but it is very effective for liver support, antioxidant support, and sometimes people's bowel movements and uh, GI function get better just by using it.
0: I thought, so yeah. I What's really the dose? It? What's the dose? I use it
1: with? as 600 milligrams a day and sometimes mm-hmm. up to four times a day in my chronically unwell patients.
0: And comment a little bit on the active component of broccoli that... Uh,
1: oh, sulforaphane. Fabulous. Sulforaphane. It's yeah. so exciting. I, It is a fantastic antioxidant detoxifier within the liver, but specifically, I like to use it in all my hormone imbalance patients because it's a very effective way to balance the major contributing hormone imbalance, which is estrogen dominance in most of our patients, too much estrogen, not enough progesterone, which cause a huge amount of symptoms, even when you're in menopause. So I use sulforaphane as a detoxifier of estrogen. It lowers estrogen. It gets rid of bad estrogen. It gets rid of toxins. It's very powerful. It's in all cruciferous vegetables. Uh, Broccoli sprouts are the highest content of sulforaphane that we know of. So sprouting is wonderful. Uh, But in general, uh, cruciferous vegetables is a fabulous thing for every woman to have, especially in menopause. It's a cup a day in your diet all the time. It's just so such a great thing. I don't normally like to supplement with it. I will if I have to, but there's so many great foods that have it, especially yeah. broccoli sprouts that I would rather do it that way.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a I think it's a great supplement, uh, just as you said. Well, we could go on and on on this, couldn't we? Yeah, so many so supplements exciting. out there and and they have such great potential for different things. The last one I wanted to end up on is bovine colostrum. Do you know much about that?
1: Yeah. So I think the colostrum concept um, has an immune modulatory effect with um, IGA support within the gut. And I do find it very helpful for my patients who have inflammatory bowel disease, autoimmune issues, joint pains. I don't fully understand the mechanism of action with it, but I think it's also has some sort of like calming action that helps with uh, just the digestive process in general. So I have patients who use it. I don't recommend it all the time, but I've just been kind of uh, surprised at how effective it is in terms of
0: symptom relief. Yeah, I've had some experience with it and it's largely been good. There are no side effects to it. And I think one of the interesting things about it is that it has so many protective properties that particularly if your patients are on non-steroidal Non steroidals, it it has mucosal protective properties. So if you're taking daily aspirin, or you're taking, you know, twice daily anti-inflammatories, it actually protects the gut. And then of course, yeah, no, that's great. Um, it has a variety of of immune function activities that probably decrease risk for traveler's diarrhea and a whole variety of different things. You can't absorb the antibody in it, but it can be in the lumen of your intestine and your small intestine and have some effect there. So yeah I like I like selective use of that of that supplement. Well this has been a terrific discussion and obviously we've just we we we've just touched the very surface of this. Well this has been a terrific discussion Josie. It's it's been my pleasure to have you again as a guest and I look forward to having you in the future because there's so much to talk about. And thanks to our audience for listening to the Columbia Association which sponsors our podcast. And um, you can listen to all of our podcasts from Finding Your Wellness by typing into your browser, findingyourwellness.podbean.com, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. This is Dr. Harry Oken, again, for Finding Your Wellness. Thank you. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Media Podcast.